Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am finishing up the Olivet Discourse today in our discussion of Luke chapter 21. We're going to take up the last three verses of the Olivet Discourse in Luke 21, verses 34, 35, and 36. After we finish that, there are two verses that are not related to the Olivet Discourse, kind of summary verses at the end of the chapter, kind of out of time sequence. We'll mention that briefly, and we'll be finished with Luke chapter 21. Now, Matthew... And Matthew, his version of the Olivet Discourse, discussed the same thing in these last three verses of Luke 21, which is Jesus' admonition to the disciples to watch carefully for the end of the age and don't get caught up in the cares of life. So I'm going to splice that discussion, Matthew 24, 36 through 51, into this audio, into this Luke audio, and then after I return from that splice, we'll take up a couple of verses in verse 34 and 35 that, G, that are, are not mentioned in Matthew or Mark either for that matter. And then I'll take up those last two verses at the end of the chapter 37 and 38. So the splice of Matthew 24, 36 through 51, talking about watching for the end of the Jewish age, begins now. Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I'm in Matthew 24, starting with verse 36. We're in the Olivet Discourse. This is Tuesday evening after Jesus' long day of teaching in the temple on the Tuesday of Passion Week, the last week of his life before Good Friday. Jesus has given the Pharisees some stern medicine, told them the temple was going to be left to them desolate, and he gave uh, lots of uh, teachings and parables talking about all the judgment that was going to be on the Pharisees, the kingdom was going to be taken away from them, and so forth. And then as they were leaving, the disciples looked back as they were leaving Jerusalem, going back to the Mount of Olives, through the Kidron Valley there, they look back, look at that temple, and said, now wait a minute, you said their house was going to be left desolate. How can that be? Look at that beautiful temple. And Jesus said, not one stone would be left on another. And that's the backdrop of where we are here in the Olivet Discourse. Jesus has gone on to tell them of all the beginning of the birth pang signs, wars, earthquakes, rumors of wars, famine, that kind of thing. The sun turning to going dark and the moon turning to blood and the decreation rhetoric and all this stuff in the Olivet Discourse. Now we get to verse 34. Jesus said, when all these things are going to take place before this, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. In other words, somebody, some of y'all are going to be living. Some of, you, some of the people in this current generation will be living at the time that this uh, t- temple gets torn down stone by stone. So that means within one generation, all of these signs and the destruction of the temple is going to happen. Now, some preterists say that right there at verse 34 where Jesus says this generation will not pass away, there's a shift to the future that Jesus kind of shifts gears and says, well, I'm coming in judgment in 80, 70, 70. Now I'm going to tell you what's going to happen at the end of the world, starting in verse 35. Now, I don't believe that. Of course, all futurists believe the whole thing is the future except for the temple being torn down. But I don't believe that there's a switch here at verse 35. Five or at 36, where we're starting here. So I'm going to assume that all of this is still talking about the destruction of the temple in AD 70. We'll go into some arguments in a little while, a little while later as to why there should be, it is alleged, there should be a shift to the future at verse 36. I'm going to try to refute that. So let's read verse 36. Now concerning that day and hour, no one knows, Jesus tells his disciples. Neither the angels in heaven nor the Son except the Father only. Well, first of all, by the very fact that Jesus is saying that he doesn't know something shows that he's operating out of his humanity here. And that's always interesting to see. Jesus sometimes knows things that only God can know, and sometimes he doesn't know things. 
that uh, God would know. Here he's talking from his humanity. He doesn't know exactly when his coming on AD 70 is. But you say, well, wait a minute. Didn't he just tell the disciples that in one generation it was going to happen? And didn't he give them a bunch of signs, famines, earthquakes, pestilence, to tell them when it was coming? He told them about the fig tree, that the twigs were going to go soft, and that there was going to be leaves growing on the fig tree. Well, yes, that's the, but that concerns the general time. I mean, one generation, that's roughly 40 years, but that's not exact. So Jesus was saying, in general, you'll know that the time is drawing near, but you don't know exactly what day the disaster is going to fall. Only the Father knows that. Hebrews 10.25 says this, not staying away from our meetings, our worship meetings, as some habitually do, but in encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So you see, the early Christians before AD 70, they could see the day drawing near. They knew that the time was coming because they knew that one generation was about to pass, but they didn't know exactly when it was. God the Father knew exactly when it was. Not only that, if they were familiar with Daniel, Daniel 9 has the 70 weeks prophecies, and you could calculate that right on down to pretty much where the destruction of Jerusalem would come. The destruction of Jerusalem is actually mentioned in Daniel 9. So they had a general idea of when the destruction of Jerusalem was going to happen and when Jesus' murder was going to be avenged, but they didn't know exactly. Day and hour means exactly when it's going to happen. We know the general time frame, but not the actual day and not the hour. Now let's look at this argument that this right here, Jesus is now not talking about the coming in judgment on Jerusalem, but he's talking about his coming at the end of the world. This argument is advocated very famously by Ken Gentry, who is a an orthodox preterist, but he switches to the future right here, and I think he's wrong. And I think if we'll look at the arguments that he gives, which I'll, I'll give you nine, nine of his arguments in a, in, a, in a little bit, I think all of them can be answered. But before I do that, let me give you the, the biggest argument as to why there probably is not a switch to the future right here. Because the, what, it's because of what I call the scrambled eggs argument. Well, first, before I give you that, let me just give you one reference that is pre-verse 36 and post-verse 36, and they're almost the same, which tends to make you think we're talking about the same time frame. Matthew 24:27, which we've already said, refers to the coming in judgment at 80:70. For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes as far as the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man. Now, Matthew 24:37, which is after the pivot verse in 36. As the days of Noah were, so the coming of the Son of Man will be. Well, the coming of the Son of Man, it just sounds like the same thing that, Matthew, that Jesus is talking about here. It's not talking about one coming and then another coming. One coming in judgment on Jerusalem in AD 70, pre-verse 36, and then post-verse 36, a coming at the end of the world. And there's certainly no indication in the text. All, Jesus would have to be just switching gears, boom, out of the blue, with no warning, with no context. And I don't think his, his readers, his listeners, could have followed that. If he was going to make a shift, it seems like he would have told them that he was going to make a shift, but he doesn't. That's, that's the first argument right there, why Jesus is talking, still talking about 8070 when we get past verse 36. Now, let me give you the scrambled eggs argument. Now, this is how this work, works. We can find another teaching of similar events that were in the Olivet Discourse. This is in Luke 17. The parallel version of the Olivet Discourse in Luke is in chapter 21. However, in verse 17, at which is most probably another occasion, I think it's another occasion. People debate this. But let's say it's another occasion. Luke tells about the same events that are in the Olivet Discourse. And they're all scattered around. pre, And they, and they can be matched up with verses in Matthew, some of which are uh, pre-verse 36 
and some of which are post verse 36, which tends to make you think that all the events happened at the same time. Let me give you an example. Luke 17:23 says this, They will say to you, look there, or look there, don't follow or run after them, talking about the false messiahs. That in Matthew, pre-verse 36 and verse 23, Jesus says, if anyone tells you, then look, here's the Messiah over here. Do not believe it. All right, so those are, that's pre-verse 36. Luke 17, 24. For as the lightning flashes from horizon to horizon and lights up the sky, so the Son of Man will be in his day. Well, that sounds like a Matthew Olivet Discourse pre-verse 36 verse in Matthew 24, 27. For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes as far as the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man. Luke 17:25 But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. In Matthew that's pre-verse 36, Matthew 24:34 I assure you this generation will certainly not pass until all these things take place. Now, those three are instances in Luke 17 which refer to events that happened uh before AD 70 because it's pre because the events happened before verse 36. But now in the same passage in Luke 17 we're going to have the events that are listed, which are post verse 36. So let's go, and we're going in order now in Luke 17. We've gone 23, verse 23, 24, 25. Now we're going to go to 26 and 27. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. People went on eating, drinking, marrying, and giving in marriage until the day Noah boarded the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. Now in Matthew, that happened post verse 36. In Matthew 24, verses 37 and 38, As the days of Noah were, so the coming of the Son of Man will be. For in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day Noah boarded the ark. All right, we're still moving down Luke 17. We go to Luke 17, 30. It will be like that on the day the Son of Man is revealed. And in Matthew, that's post verse 36. Matthew 24, 39, They didn't know until the flood came and swept them all away. So this is the way the coming of the Son of Man will be. Then we go to Luke 17:31, dropping down another verse. On that day, a man on the housetop whose belongings are in the house must not come down to get them. Likewise, the man who was in the field must not turn back. Aha, now that is pre-verse 36. So now we've jumped from pre to post back to pre-verse 36. Because Matthew 24:17, which is before verse 36, and Matthew 24 says this. A man on the housetop must not come down to get things out of his house. Dropping that in Luke 17 down to Luke 17:34. I tell you, on that night, two will be in one bed. One will be taken and the other will be left. Whoa, that's post verse 36 in Matthew 24. It's Matthew 24:41 says two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Luke 17:36, two will be in a field. One will be taken and the other will be left. All right, that in Matthew is post verse 36. Matthew 24:40, then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. So we drop down to Luke 17 verse 37. Where, Lord, they asked him, he said to them, where the corpse is, there also the vultures will be gathered. In Matthew, that's pre-verse 36. Matthew 24, 28, wherever the carcass is, there the vultures will gather. So what we have here is we have a strict chronological recitation of eschatological events in Luke 17. And if you map those events with Matthew 24, you will see that some of them go pre-verse 36, some of them go post-verse 36, so the idea is they all happen at the same time. Now, if you're a futurist, of course, you'll say that same time as the future, but if you're a preterist, the logical thing is to say, well, all of this is referring to Luke, uh, to, referring to AD 70. I think that's a pretty damning argument for the gentry view that there's a switch here in verse 36 to to the future. Now, here's how Kenneth Gentry answers that scrambled eggs argument. 
he says, well, Luke 17 is not the Olivet Discourse. That doesn't cut it with me because it sounds like the Olivet Discourse. It might have been given at a different time, but all the events there are mentioned in the Olivet Discourse, it sounds like the same discourse, even if it was given at a different time. And Jesus made no attempt to separate some events before for 8070 and some events at the end of the world. He mixed them all together. So to me, that's the end of the story right there. We're still talking about 8070. But I'm going to go through nine arguments that Ken, Ken Gentry gives in favor of a transition to the end of the world at verse 36. Now, Gentry, as a preliminary statement, says that since both AD 70 and the second coming are coming in judgment, it's logical to make a switch there. It's logical to talk about both. And yes, that's logical. But where does Jesus indicate the switch? He doesn't. And to me, if you're talking about a momentous switch from AD 70 to the end of the world, he would have told the disciples. And besides, he's making a switch to disciples who don't even understand the concept of coming back at the end of the world, as I've made abundantly clear in the first audio in this series here on the Olivet Discourse. So here we have a logical switch that's logical to you and me and logical to Jesus, but not logical to the disciples. They wouldn't have understood it. And plus, it's a switch done in silence because there's no indication of a switch. All right, let's start looking at, that's his first, uh, Gentry's first argument. It's logical to have both, and I just answered it, but it's logical, but not to the disciples, and, and it's done in silence. So why, why should it say there's a switch to the future there? That's the first argument. The second argument, Matthew 24, 34 is a logical concluding statement for 8070. This generation will certainly not pass away until all these things take place. Boom, end of story. That's a, that's a stopping point. Well, the answer to that is, that the first part of the discourse before verse 34 is to tell Christians when to expect about approximately when the judgment on Jerusalem was going to come. And then after you get past 34, and, and verse 34 is, is culminating, it tells when. There were some signs, there were some signs, there were some signs, birth pang signs, and then, okay, and then bang, verse 34 sums it all up. This generation will not pass away. We get past 34, we, now we're telling Christians how to behave in the run-up period before Jerusalem goes down. So there's a reason why verse 34 was put there. It's because the, Jesus was finished with the when, and now he's going to start talking about a how, how you're supposed to behave yourself in this troublesome time. Third argument Gentry makes. This generation, he says, and is constantly used before verse 36, or is used before verse 36, but in, in verse 36, Jesus refers to that day. The implication of that is that day is pointing way off into the future at the end of time. Let me read that for you again. He says, now concerning that, that, day, that day and hour, no one knows. That day, way off into the future. Well, the answer to that is very simple. Why couldn't Jesus be referring to that day 40 years off from his future? That's far enough out in the future to use that instead of this. That, my friends, is not a strong argument. So that's Gentry's third argument. Gentry's fourth argument. Before verse 36, Jesus speaks of days, as in days of vengeance. Well, actually, that's in Luke. But after verse 36, he uses the verb day. For example, the Great Tribulation before verse 36 takes more than one day. Thus, the word days is used in the passages before verse 36, but the return of Jesus at the end of time takes only one day. Thus, we have the word day in verse 36. Let me read verse 36 again. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows. But concerning that day, singular, and hour, no one knows. So there's the argument. If you look before verse 36, you'll see days mentioned several times. For example, in verse 19, woe to pregnant nursing women in those days. Verse 22, for the sake 
of the elect, those days will be cut short. In fact, days is used twice in that verse. Verse 29, after the tribulation of those days, Jesus said, then we get to verse 36, concerning the day and hour of that day, singular. And so the argument goes, let me repeat it, is that the days is referring to the length of the great tribulation, which takes more than one day. And of course, the great tribulation on a preterist view is just talking about the Jewish war, three and a half years. But then that day, singular, is talking about the judgment day when Jesus comes back. Because the return of Jesus at the end of time takes only one day, whereas days, the great tribulation, takes three and a half years. Well, now, what's the answer to this argument? First of all, it's true that the Great Tribulation takes more than one day, but it had a climatic day at the end, the day that Jerusalem was burned. That was a singular time, so it's appropriate to use a singular day when you get to verse 36. And in fact, you can go two verses after verse 36 and see an analogy with Noah, the idea that days, the time of tribulation leading up to the climatic event is plural, and then at the climatic event, the day is singular. Matthew 24, verse 38, just two verses past our verse that we're talking about now. For in those days, plural, before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day, singular, Noah boarded the ark, and that was the day of the flood. So you got days leading up to the climatic event, and then you got the day of the climatic event. So that's not a good argument. The days, plural, day, singular argument is no good. We go to the fifth gentry argument, arguing that there is a transition to the end of the world at verse 36. Gentry argues that there are lots of signs before verse 36, but there are no signs after 36, and therefore Jesus has switched topics. He says that the fact that Jesus doesn't use any signs after verse six, six, after verse 36 shows that Jesus' end of the time return, end of time return would be signless, unlike the Olivet Discourse, which had all kinds of signs, wars, rumors of wars, pestilence, and so forth, earthquakes. Well, here's the answer to that. Before verse 36, yes, there were signs. Those signs were necessary to let the gen- disciples know the general time, the one generation general time things are about to happen. And they're supposed to be careful not to get premature about the coming of Jesus. But after verse 36, Jesus switches topics. He's no longer talking about the time of of his coming in judgment. He's talking about the disciples need to be watchful for his coming in judgment. And besides, it's not even true that there were no signs post verse 37. In verse 42, Jesus says this, Matthew 24, verse 42, Therefore be alert since you don't know what day your Lord is coming. Be alert. Well, how can you be alert if there's no signs to watch for? And then also in verse 38, he says the coming of the Lord will be just like the days of Noah. That's post verse 36, where there are not supposed to be any signs, but Noah had signs. And if, it's, and if the coming of Jesus at the end of the world is going to be like in the days of Noah, and Noah had signs, that means Jesus is coming post verse 36 is also going to have signs. Which, means, which makes it just like pre-verse 36. And pre-verse 36 is the coming and judgment on Jerusalem in AD 70. So therefore, it's reasonable to assume that just like in the days of Noah, his coming post-verse 36 has signs also and refers to AD 70. How did Noah have signs? Well, first of all, he was told seven days previously before the flood that the precise day was coming seven days later, Genesis 7:4. Seven days from now I will make it rain on the earth forty days and forty nights, and I will wipe off from the face of the earth every living thing I have made seven days from now. Noah was told 
to load the animals. That was surely a sign. So he had a warning that the day of judgment was coming. So that's just, and, and Matthew explicitly says that the coming of Jesus is going to be like the days of Noah in verse 38, which is post verse 36, which means that is referring to the Olivet Discourse. People are going to be eating and drinking, giving in marriage. Bang, just like in the days of Noah, and the judgment's coming. So anyway, the signs, no signs argument is not going to fly. Let's go to the sixth argument that Gentry uses trying to show a transition at verse 36. Jesus knew the time of the judgment pre-verse 36, the time of the fall of Jerusalem, but he didn't know the post-36 date of the end of time. For example, says Gentry, pre-verse 36, he does know when the end is coming. 24 verse 6, you're going to hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed because these things must take place, but the end is not yet. So he knows that the end is not at that time. Verse 29, immediately after the tribulation of those days, immediately after the sun will be darkened, the moon will not shed its light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the celestial powers will be shaken. See there? Jesus knows. He knows when Jerusalem is going to fall after the great tribulation. Verse 30, then the sign of man will appear in the sky. The sign of the Son of Man in heaven will appear. The sign of the Son of Man will appear then, which shows that he knows approximately knows when it's going to take place. But in verse 36, he does, after verse 36, he does not know. In verse 36, he says this, Concerning that day and hour, no one knows, neither, neither the angels in heaven nor the Son except the Father only. Well, the answer here is very simple. Jesus knew the general time of judgment within one generation, and there's going to be certain preliminary birth pang signs. He knew that generally, just like Noah knew generally there was a flood coming. But just like Noah, who didn't know the precise time that the flood was coming, Jesus didn't know the day and the hour, the precise time that the judgment on Jerusalem was coming. So that's the sixth argument that Jesus has used. But Jesus' knowledge changed before Verse 36, he knew, but at post 36, he didn't know. That's not going to fly. Now let's go to the seventh argument that Gentry uses. He says in verse 34, Jesus says, This generation will not pass away, which shows that the coming is fairly quick within 40 years. But the verses post 34 show a long, long delay. Therefore, Jesus is said to be talking about the end of time. Now here's some examples of these so-called delay verses that show a long, long delay. The delay, verse 48, my wicked servant, the wicked servant says this, my master is staying away a long time. Of course, the wicked servant is uh, the, the Jews, the Pharisees, and Jesus staying away a long time as Jesus is coming. Verse 25, chapter 25, verse 5, the bridegroom was a long time in coming. This is the parable of the ten virgins. That long time shows Jesus is taking a long time to come back. Chapter 25, verse 19, after a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts. So th therefore, Gentry says, see there, this is referring to Jesus' return after a long time. And 87 is not a long time. Well, long is a relative term. And in all three of those cases I just gave you, the delay could not be longer than one single lifetime. In verse 48, my wicked master, excuse me, the wicked servant says, my master is staying away a long time. Well, that's for the lifetime of the wicked servant at the max. It was the wicked servant who was cut to pieces, not his remote descendants. How about this in Matthew 25, 5, the bridegroom was a long time in coming, the parable of the ten virgins. The bridegroom, it was the bridegroom who returned to the ten virgins. It was gone a long time, but it was the bridegroom that returned, not his remote descendants. That's within one lifetime. Matthew 25, verse 19, after a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts. This is the parable of the 
talents, master being Jesus, of course. The master settled the accounts with the slaves in, that were alive at the time the parable was given, not his remote descendants. So it's a long time in the, in looking at the delay from the point of view of a single lifetime. And Jesus is saying, okay, you guys, let's say he's talking to John. He was talking to John. Listen, I'm going to delay 40 of your years of your life. I'm not coming back. But after 40 years, I will. That's a long time for an individual lifetime. So that argument doesn't hold water either. The long time delay versus it's a long time to 87. just like relatively speaking. All right, let's look at argument number eight. The verses before verse 36 are said to show chaos, whereas after verse 36, there's tranquility. Before verse 36, there's wars, earthquakes, pestilence, and famine. But after verse 36, normal daily affairs are emphasized, eating, drinking, giving, marriage, and so forth. The answer to that is that, yes, normal daily life was going on in Jerusalem right before it fell. The doomed ones in Jerusalem were doing their business. They were eating, drinking, marrying, thinking that Jerusalem was going to survive. But they didn't. So that's not a good argument. The ninth argument that Gentry uses, the but of verse 36 indicates a transition between 80, a transition between 8070 to the end of the world. Let me read verse 36 again, and we'll emphasize the, the but there. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows. Well, this to me is the weakest of all because the Greek word there is duh. Greek word for the transition, duh, means nothing. It means but. And sometimes the contrast between the first clause and the second clause is so minor and so slight that oftentimes the translations don't even translate it. In fact, there are 20, the word but is used 24 times in chapters 24 and 25. 24 verses 6, 8, 13, 20, 32, 36, 43, and 48, for example. 24 times. Are there 24 transitions in those two chapters? Of course not. The Greek is duh. I just saw it in my notes. It just connects clauses. It doesn't necessarily mean opposition to the previous clause. It usually means, but sometimes it can be translated and. In fact, the NIV doesn't even put a but in verse 36. Now, the ESV does. Let's see what the Holman Christian Study Bible, do they put a but there? I can't remember. Let me see. No, they say now. Now concerning that day and hour. There's not even a but in Holman Christian Study Bible. Not even a but in the NIV. That is a that is an argument that's not worth mentioning, except that Ken Gentry mentions it, and I would have thought somebody that's as, as scholarly and as knowledgeable as he was wouldn't use an argument like that, in my humble opinion. But at any rate, we're going to assume from now on that the rest of these verses are referring to 87. So let's go to verse 37 to 39. As the days of Noah were, so the coming of the Son of Man will be, the coming of the Son of Man to judge Jerusalem. For in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day Noah boarded the ark. They didn't know until the flood came and swept them all away. So this is the way the coming of the Son of Man will be. What's the options? What's the point of the metaphor? The, the judgment is sudden. It's universal. And the judgment is, is actually coming. It's coming on a given day. Suddenly. Universally. Just like the flood came. It came suddenly and it flooded everything in sight and killed everybody. Universal flood, folks. So, likewise, these people in Jerusalem, that judgment is going to come suddenly and it's going to wipe the whole city out. In fact, all of Israel is going to be wiped out. And those people in Jerusalem, they were just living their life before the Jewish war broke out especially. They were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, living a normal social life, thinking that things were going to go on and on and on like they always were. Then all of a sudden, that Jewish war started, the siege began, and they got wiped out. Here's a side point here. It's a minor point. But in verse 39, we see this word, all. 
They didn't know Noah and his sons. They didn't know until the flood came and swept them all away. Actually, the they does not refer to Noah and, the, and their sons. It means the they just refers to everybody on earth that was eating and drinking. They didn't know until the flood came and swept them all, swept them all away. Actually, all not swept away. There was eight remaining, Noah and his sons and wives and his wife. All does not always mean all. Sometimes it just means many or almost all. Verse 40 through 41, Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. And what that means is, is that people will be doing their normal work, and all of a sudden the Romans are going to come and take one of them and leave one of them behind in the Jewish war. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. One's going to be taken prisoner, one's going to be left behind. It's all done by the besieging Roman armies, as John Gill says. Now note that this verse... Well, before I get into that, let's talk about how what is to be taken is obvious. The Romans are taking them. But what about the one left? The Romans didn't take everyone into captivity. There was a miserable rump of people still left at Jerusalem. John Gill says this, quote, Which was the case of some few, and those of the meaner sort, and therefore persons of a rural life and occupation are instanced. So in other words, some people were left behind. And is left behind is not in the sense of Tim LaHaye, folks. Notice that the pre-trib, pre-rapture people talk about what they, how they interpret this is that somebody, that God is going to come take people out of the earth and leave people behind to go through the great tribulation. It does not say that. It does not imply that. And it does not mean that. Here, the person who is taken is the one who is the is is the one who is taken is the bad guy. The unbelieving Jews were taken by the besieging Romans. The one left is the one who avoids the judgment. But the pre-trib rapture people got it backwards. They've got the good guys being taken and the bad guys being left behind. Whereas actually what was happening is the bad guys were taken as those who did not suffer judgment were left behind. They didn't suffer the judgment. Some of these people that are left behind might be people who avoided the judgment. And that, that includes Christians who escaped to Pella. They managed to get out of, the, out of Dodge and did not suffer judgment. So again, that's exactly backwards of the way the pre-trib people take it. And of course, I think most of their theology is pretty much exactly backwards. Let's go to Matthew 24, verses 42 through 44. Therefore be alert, since you don't know what day your Lord is coming, but know this, if the homeowner had known what time the thief was coming, he would have stayed alert and not let his house be broken into. This is why you also must be ready, because the Son of Man is coming in an hour you do not expect. Now again... Coming at an hour you do not expect, that means the precise time they don't know is going to happen suddenly. Because it's going to happen suddenly. They know the general time. They know that the fig tree has gotten tender and the sprouting leaves and there's wars and there's rumors of wars. But you still don't know exactly when it's going to come and destroy Jerusalem. When he says be on the alert, the disciples took that advice. Actually, they were on the alert. They saw the army surrounding Jerusalem and they escaped to Pella. Now, this coming of the Son of Man came as a thief. But that is only because he was unexpected by non-believers. If the homeowner had known what time the thief was coming, he did not know that the thief was coming. But the disciples did know, generally, that the thief was coming, and referring to Jesus. If the, if the homeowner had known what time the thief was coming, if and the Christians generally knew what time the thief was coming, so they weren't surprised. They would, they would have stayed alert, not let his house be broken into. They would have been like alert people. They would have been the Christians that were ready for Jesus to come. But if you're not going to be alert, if you're going to be sleeping in your house and not knowing that the thief is coming, it's like Jews who are sleeping in their spiritual slumber, not realizing that Jesus is coming back, getting ready to break in. 
This is why you also must be ready. In other words, don't be like these unknowing house owners who don't believe that the thief is coming. Don't be like that. Be ready and believe that Jesus is coming because the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. In other words, the idea is you, if you don't pay attention to all these signs I'm giving you, Jesus is going to come back when you don't expect him. So pay attention to the signs of the times. Let me give you a quote from John Gill who illustrates the ambiguity of scholars who think that maybe Jesus has switched from 8070 to the end of the world. I don't believe this, but this is what Gill says. Quote, I will not deny but that what follows may be much better accommodated and applied to the second coming of Christ and the last judgment. I don't believe that. And the behavior of men with regard to both. In other words, all this stuff is ambiguous. It can go for the last judgment or it can go to 8070. All of this, all this stuff that's happening now after verse 36, uh, more often uh, seems to better apply to the second coming of Christ than anything said before, says Gill. And it, be, and it may be our Lord's intention to lead his disciples gradually and, as it were, imperceptibly to the last scene of things on earth to make way for the parables and description of the future judgment in the next chapter, still keeping in view and having reference to the subject he had been so long upon. So Gill says there's a silent shift to the future. He's kind of getting them ready for the final judgment. He's talking about the preliminary judgment. And actually, that does make sense, except for one thing. Jesus never indicates, indicates it anywhere. And I don't know why he expected his slow disciples to pick up on his shift. And I don't think the average reader of the Gospels would ever pick up on it either. Matthew 24, verses 45 through 51. Who then is a faithful and sensible slave, whom his master has put in charge of his household to give them food at the proper time? That, of course, refers to the apostles that Jesus, the good apostles that Jesus wants them to be, a sensible slave in charge of his household, in charge of the church, taking, feeding the Christians at the proper time. That slave whose master finds him working when he comes will be rewarded. In other words, Jesus says, I'm leaving. I want you to work. Build the church. Verse 47, I assure you, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. In other words, Jesus is, go is going to put those apostles in charge of his church if they stay alert and keep working. But if that wicked slave says in his heart, and that refers, of course, to the Pharisees and Sadducees, if that wicked slave says in his heart, my master is delayed, oh, where is he? He's gone a long time, and starts to beat his fellow slaves. That's referring to the Pharisees beating the Christians, the Pharisees and Sadducee Jews beating the Christian Jews. And he starts to beat his fellow slaves and eats and drinks with drunkards. In other words, acts unrighteously. That slave's master will come on a day he does not expect, and an hour he does not know. In other words... The non-believing slave, the wicked slave, is not going to know when Jesus comes back. It's going to happen all of a sudden. He, the returning master, which refers to Jesus, will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites. Jesus is going to cut the Pharisees and the Sadducees to pieces. He's going to come on them unexpectedly. In that place, he's a, he's, Jesus is going to assign the Pharisees and Sadducees to a place with the hypocrites. Where is that place? In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is similar to a, a parable in Luke, Luke 12, verse 42, where the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and sensible manager's master will put in charge of his household servants to give them their allotted food at the proper time? So Jesus is constantly referring his apostles to being stewards of a household. Now, let's look at that word delayed again. The wicked slave says in his heart, My master is delayed, but only for a lifetime because it's the wicked slave, remember? Can't delay over because, it, because the, the, Jesus came back and cut up the, the wicked slave. So that means the delay could not have been more than the lifetime of the wicked slave. One lifetime, one generation, if you will, maybe, like about 40 years. This cut up, this wicked slave that was cut up, this could refer to an ancient mode of punishment, according to Adam Clark. 
First the feet, then the hands, then the legs, then the arms, and then the head were all cut off. Ooh, that's not an easy way to go. It wasn't an easy way for the Jewish kingdom to go. A lot of people died, 1.1 million, according to Josephus. The wicked slave was cut up. Now this assigning of the place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth sounds like the parable of the wheat and the tares. Matthew 13, 40-42, Therefore, just as the weeds are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will gather from his kingdom everything that causes sin, those guilty of lawlessness. They will throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Sounds an awful lot like Jerusalem when it was burned. And it's the end of the age, but sounds like the Jewish age. Of course, the wheat and tares is most often referred to the end of time. I'm not so sure about that. At any rate, we are finished with Matthew chapter 24. All right, we are now returning from our splice in Matthew 24, 36 through 51. And I need to take up a little bit of, I need to discuss a little bit verses 34 and 35 of Luke 21 because Matthew didn't cover that. Jesus says in Matthew 21 verses 34 and 35 the following, Be on your guard so that your minds are not dulled from carousing, drunkenness, and worries of life. Or that day will come on you unexpectedly like a trap. Now, I'm assuming that day is referring to the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 by the Roman armies. Then Jesus goes on to say, For it will come on all who live on the face of the whole land. Well, actually, the Holman Christian Study Bible has earth, but that word gay can be translated land. Here it should be translated land. Here everybody in Israel faced sudden disaster. Everybody in Jerusalem faced sudden disaster. I am not alone in believing this. The great commentators John Gill says it's the land of Judea being referred here, referred to here, and Adam Clark says it's the whole land, the land of Judea. He agrees also. So that is a very confusing translation, but of course all the translations are futurist, aren't they? And they don't even think that it might refer to 8070, which it does. So it will come this day, this day, that day. Of course, day in the scriptures is con it refers to judgment usually that day, not necessarily. That judgment on Jerusalem in 87, not 70, not necessarily the day of judgment at the end of the world, not necessarily the judgment of the Babylonians on Israel, not necessarily the day of judgment on northern on the northern kingdom by the Assyrians. It means judgment, because and here he's talking about Jerusalem from the context. We know that. So it will come upon all those who live on the face of the land. Now, it's interesting that Jesus asked his disciples, or warned his disciples, not to be dulled from carousing, drunkenness, and worries of life. Well, to me, it's sort of strange that he would expect his disciples to get seduced by that kind of nonsense. But I guess anybody can backslide, and I guess he was worried they might be caught up with the worries of the world because he took so long to judge Jerusalem. Forty years is a long time. A long time when you're getting persecuted from synagogue to synagogue, talking about the coming of the kingdom. And Paul, remember, told Timothy in that day there will be lovers of self and all those terrible things that will happen and which futurists always refer to the end of the world. I don't believe so. I believe he's referring to the events leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. And apparently there was going to be falling away from the faith. People were going to lose heart, lose hope. In another place... Earlier in Luke, Jesus was preparing his disciples. He says, do not lose hope and do not stop praying because of all this stuff that's going to happen. Not only the persecutions from the Jews, but also the cares of this life. We're going to tempt the disciples. And he's saying, don't do that, but keep looking for me. I'm coming back. Just hang in there. I will wipe out these people who are trying to kill you. 
All right, let's go now. That's the end of the Olivet Discourse. Let's go to the last two verses in Luke, which are not really tied to the Olivet Discourse. In fact, A.T. Robertson, his harmony, puts it all the way back Tuesday morning, not here Tuesday evening on the Olivet Discourse, but earlier that morning when they're walking into the temple and they see the cursed fig tree not bearing fruit. I don't know why he picks that time. It seems to me it's just a, these two verses are just a summary talking about Jesus' habits. Verse 37, during the day he was teaching in the temple complex, but in the evening he would go out and spend the night on what is called the Mount of Olives. He's just, he just summarizing Jesus' ministry during Passion Week. Verse 38, then all the people would come early in the morning to hear him in the temple complex. So he went during the day from the triumphal entry, Palm Sunday on Sunday. He came in on Monday. That's when he, he cleansed the temple. For the second time. Then he came in on Tuesday when he had most of his ministry in the Olivet Discourse. He took Wednesday off and then he came into Passover for Thursday night. And then Friday night he went back to the Garden of Gethsemane and was arrested and crucified on Friday. But in general, that during that week he would go in the morning and teach in the temple complex and then go back to the Mount of Olives at night to Bethany. And thus endeth the discussion of Luke chapter 21. We'll take up like Luke chapter 22 in the next audio. I hope you enjoyed this one.